Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone, and welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and today I have an excellent interview on tap for you. Andy Walden, who is the Vice President of Enterprise Research and Strategy at ICE, is going to be joining us again on the show. Andy was first on On the Market, I think it was back in May or June, and he was working for a company that at that point was called Black Knight. They have since been acquired by a company called ICE or ICE, and so you might hear both of those during the course of our conversation. But Andy and his team are experts on all things in the housing market, but what they really focus on is what is going on in the lending market. And as we all know, we are all subject to the whims of interest rates these days, and Andy has some insights for us about what is going on with foreclosures, purchase originations, where he thinks rates are going, how different parts of the country are going to be affected. He just released this amazing mortgage monitor report, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And I am super excited to talk to him about it because it is just chock full of insights that are extremely actionable for real estate investors just like you and I. So with no further ado, we're going to welcome on Andy Walden from ICE. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. I used to think working from home was the dream, until it wasn't. 
Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's biggerpockets.com industrious and use promo code pockets after clicking join now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious. It's where your best work happens. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Andy Walden, welcome back to On the Market. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me again. For those of our listeners who didn't listen to your first appearance on this show, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at ICE? Yeah, I am the Vice President of Enterprise Research and Strategy at ICE. And so it, effectively what that means is I get I get my little hands in uh, all of the data that we have available to us, whether it's housing market data or mortgage performance or anything around the mortgage uh, life cycle really getting to play into all those different data sets. And now in being acquired by ICE, we have even more data at our fingertips. We're more uh, heavily in the origination space. We've got some rate lock data that can tell us what borrowers are doing out there in the market. So really excited to get to share some of that data today. Well, I'm very excited. I was looking through your mortgage report, which we're going to be talking about a lot today. And I was very jealous that you have access to all this data. There's just so <laughs> much information that's extremely pertinent to the housing market and everything that's going on with housing right now. So with that said, can you just tell us a little bit about the October 23 mortgage report and what's contained in it? Yeah, so we did a little bit of everywhere, everything, right? And we, we try every month to put, as you mentioned, the most pertinent data in there. So we'll go everywhere from mortgage performance to mortgage originations. Uh, we'll get into the housing market very specifically and look what's going on at a macro level and look into specific geographies in terms of what's going on. I think in terms of nuance this month, we had some data around the Super Bowl mortgages. They're becoming a bigger and bigger uh, topic of conversation. We looked at the market from a mortgage lender standpoint, obviously a very challenging market right now. And so we gave some some pointers around you know where we see the market going throughout 2023 and 24, how to, how to best capitalize, how to understand who's transacting in the market, why are they transacting in the market? Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, a lot around the, the, the housing market and, and the dynamics going on right now, which are very interesting. So what are some of the most, uh, the, the most important takeaways that you think our audience of small to medium-sized real estate investors should know about? Yeah, I think a, a couple different things, right? One is when you look at the mortgage performance landscape, it it's, remains extremely strong, right? So folks that are looking into that foreclosure arena are looking for any distress coming out of the mortgage market. It's about as low as we've ever seen it. 
That being said, we're, we're kind of nearing this inflection point. We're seeing some signals from the market that we may be reaching kind of a cycle low in terms of mortgage delinquencies and mortgage performance. Uh, just if you look at those annualized rates of improvement, they're starting to slow down and kind of flatten out a little bit. But we're seeing delinquencies one percentage point below both their pre-pandemic and their pre-great financial crisis era, which may not sound like a lot, but that's roughly 25% fewer delinquencies than there traditionally are even in good times. Um, so performance overall is very, very strong. If you look at it from the housing market, I think that's probably where a lot of your listeners are, are focused in. Mm -hmm. It was an extremely hot August, right? We got our ICE home price index data in for the month of August. Very strong numbers across the board, right? We saw the fourth consecutive month where we've hit a record high in terms of home prices in the US. Home prices up 2.5% from where they peaked out late last year. And then that headline annual home price growth rate that we all look at, right? Where are home prices versus where they were a year ago? We've gone from 20% in 2021 to effectively flat in May as the Fed raised rates and tried to compress that market. But then we're seeing this reacceleration. We're back up to nearly 4% annualized home price growth again and poised for some additional push based on some of the baked in home price growth that we've already seen this year, right? So that's what we're seeing through August. And then if you look at what's going on in the week since with mortgage rates, they're up to 7.5% according to our ICE conforming 30-year fixed rate index, which has pulled 6% of the buying power out of the market since those August closings went under contract, right? So we're looking for maybe yet another inflection in the housing market as we move late into this year. So a, a lot a lot going on in the report, a lot going on in the mortgage and housing markets right now. You, you actually beat me to one of my questions, Andy, <laughs> which was about how much buying power has been removed from the market because obviously we see this dynamic in the housing market where supply has stayed really low. And even though demand has deteriorated over the course of the year, since they both fell relatively proportionately, we see housing prices somewhat stable. As you said, they were, you know, in August, they were up a bit. Um, but now seeing, you know, rates just skyrocketing, you know, even more than they had. And so just curious, like, how do you come up with that number? And can you just tell us a little bit more about the implications of that, that 6% of the buying power has been removed just in the last few weeks? Yeah. So let's talk about the numbers in and of themselves, right? So when we look at home affordability in general, we're really triangulating three things. We're triangulating income, we're triangulating home prices and interest rates. And we're looking at what share of income is needed at any given point in time for the median earner to buy the median home. That's kind of how we assess affordability. And we do it at the national level. We do it across all of the major markets across the country as well. And nationally, we go all the way back into the 1970s to draw comparisons because what we found was during the pandemic, we were kind of reaching outside of normal bounds. We were seeing the lowest levels of affordability that we had ever seen in, in more recent data sets. And so we were having to go all the way back into the 70s, into the Volcker era to find something more comparable to what we're seeing today, right? So that's, that's how we come up with those affordability numbers. And when you look at that, what you see is that we're nearing 40%, right? It takes 40% of the median earners gross, not net, we're not talking paycheck, we're talking gross monthly income to afford just the principal and the interest payment on the median home purchase. The worst that it's been since the early 1980s, uh, obviously very unaffordable. And the only time we've seen affordability at these levels um, was when interest rates were above 12%, right? And, wow. and we're seeing those similar levels of affordability today at 7.5% just because of how much home price growth has out outpaced uh, income growth in recent years. So a massive challenge out there in the market. When you look at how that's impacting demand and borrower behavior, 
We're now seeing, if you look at mortgage applications, they're 45% below pre-pandemic levels. That's the lowest that they've been versus quote unquote normal, right? If there is ever a, a normal in the housing market, that's the lowest that we've seen them so far. And so you're certainly seeing these rising interest rates start to impact how many borrowers are out there shopping in the market. All right, great. Well, thank you. That's extremely helpful. Do you have any thoughts on like if mortgages go up to, let's just say 8%, you know, another 50 basis points, is that going to be another 6%? Does it get, you know, sort of worse as the, as the numbers get higher? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty even over time, right? The rule of thumb is kind of a 10 to 12% reduction in buying power for every uh, percent rise in interest rates. And so you can kind of cut that in half for a half a percent rise in rates. Again, our, our conforming 30-year fixed rate index was 7.5% yesterday, meaning that if you look at the market yesterday, the average rate locked in by a buyer using a conforming loan was 7.5%. So again, if yeah, if you go up to 8%, another 6% reduction in, in buying power and vice versa if rates were to fall. And so you are seeing a constraint. And when we look at it in the light of the kind of August data that's been most recently released, those loans went under contract in July. Right. So we've already seen that six percent decline in buying power from when the latest housing market data is coming out, suggesting we could see further cooling here over the next couple of months. Uh, so certainly something that we'll be watching very, very closely. That sort of talks a little bit about the demand side. But when you look at the the supply side, to me, at least, I see I have a hard time seeing how that moves a lot in the next couple of years. Right. Because like if this lock in effect is real and rates are going up, then it's going to only get worse. You know, construction is doing its thing, but it's not going to come in and save supply anytime soon. And so a lot of things people are point to or ask about is foreclosures. But you said earlier that delinquency rates, you know, uh, at least according to the most recent mortgage monitor report are lower than they were in 2019. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the state of delinquencies and if you expect things to change anytime in the future? Yeah, we, we do expect them to go up, right? So current state of delinquencies, you you hit it, right? They're extremely low right now. We talked about that a little bit earlier. If you look at serious delinquencies and the risk of foreclosure, right? And typically foreclosures account for roughly three to 5% of all home sales. They're well below that right now. So even, hmm. even in a normal market, you're talking about relatively slow or relatively low volumes of, of inventory out there but they're well below long run averages. And, and when you look at serious delinquencies and look at remaining protections on those loans, right? You're still seeing a lot of servicers that are uh, kind of rolling some of those forbearance plans forward or ro rolling those forbearance programs forward to help borrowers that are struggling in today's market. 70% of all serious delinquencies of, of the very low level of serious delinquencies that are out there in the market right now are still protected from foreclosure by loss mitigation, forbearance, bankruptcy, those types of things. And so you're just seeing very, very little inflow into foreclosure and serious delinquencies themselves are the lowest that they've been since 2006. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. When we look at it from an inventory perspective, we're looking for all of these little new nooks and crannies, right? New builds, how can they help? How can potentially, if we saw some rise in defaults, could that actually help the market from a, uh, a housing mm -hmm. market perspective? And there just aren't a whole lot of answers right now to the supply problems. And we're still, as we sit here, we've, we've been seeing inventory edge slightly higher the last couple of months, we're still at roughly half of what we should have mm -hmm. in terms of for, for sale inventory out there in the market. And as you mentioned, that's keeping prices very, very sticky. I have a question that might be stupid, so please bear <laughs> with me right now. But I'm curious if the relationship between delinquencies and foreclosures have changed over time, or if that's possible. Because 
Obviously, everyone compares the current situation to what happened during the financial crisis, where a lot of people had negative equity. And if you were delinquent, then you were probably going to get foreclosed on. There was a short sales, all these negative outcomes. Right now, all the data shows that people are equity rich. And so I'm curious if there's any logic to this idea that even if if delinquencies go up, foreclosures might not go up because people could just sell on the open market. That could still help inventory, but it wouldn't be through a foreclosure. I mean, you're absolutely right. It happens for a couple of different reasons. One of them you talked about is equity. And you're right. They are as equity rich as they've ever been. We're nearing the, the levels of equity that we saw last summer before housing prices began to correct. So homeowners, very, very strong from an equity standpoint. The other reason is I kind of look at servicers like Batman a little bit, right? Servicers have all these uh, tools in their tool belt or whatever you want to call it <laughs> yeah. to, to help homeowners. And they've really built those over the last two decades, right? The first time was the great financial crisis. And we learned a lot about loan modifications and what worked and what didn't work. And they've got all of those programs set up and ready to deploy when borrowers become delinquent. The second one was during the COVID pandemic and forbearance became the big uh, talking point, the big program that that was rolled out there for folks that had short-term losses of of income, right? And so we have all of these programs and all of these tools in our servicing tool belts now that we're ready to deploy, right? They've been mm-hmm. battle tested. They're ready to go. They're set up in servicing systems. We can roll out loss mitigation plans relatively easily if folks have longer-term loss of income for short-term loss of income. Forbearances have become very, very popular recently. And so th- we have a lot of tools there to help homeowners avoid foreclosure and avoid that distressed inflow, even in the case that they become delinquent. It doesn't mean it'll be non-existent, but the roll rates from delinquency to foreclosure are certainly lower than they have been historically. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad my hypothesis is bare <laughs> right now. But yeah, I think it's important that, you know, I, I was reading an article, I forget where it was, just talking about like the banks sort of learned their lesson um, from what happened during the great financial crisis and how they lost a lot of money that they may not need to have lost if they had these uh, tools in their tool belt, as you said, because they were just foreclosing. You know, everyone was just panicking, you know, and just trying to like they wanted to get them off their books. Whereas if they rolled out some of these forbearance programs or loan modifications, they probably would have done a lot better. And so I think this isn't just, you know, out of the kindness of their own heart, but the banks have a financial incentive to modify and work with borrowers if there is some sort of delinquency. Yeah, we've we've learned a lot on both sides, right? So we've been talking about servicing and how we better service mortgages to reduce default. And that's ingrained in servicing systems. We certainly have it in our MSP platform, most certainly. But on the origination side of the, of the house, we've learned a lot of lessons there too, right? Don't if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, just make sure you're, the borrower can pay their fully indexed rate, right? Same goes for buy downs that are taking place. Same goes for credit quality. And you're seeing extremely high credit quality mortgages being originated mm-hmm. in recent years. When you look at the outstanding stock of mortgages, mortgage payments are very low. Right? Folks have locked mm-hmm. in very low interest rates right now. They're very strong holistically from a DTI perspective, from an equity perspective. Uh, arm share of active mortgages is a fifth of what it was back in 2006, seven. So in many ways, right, when you look at where we stand today versus the great financial crisis, the mortgage and housing market is structured very, very differently. It's much more solid. And I wouldn't expect to see anything near an outcome you saw from the great financial crisis era, just because of the the improvements that were put in place across the board from origination all the way down through uh, servicing systems. Well, that is encouraging. Hopefully, hopefully <laughs> that uh, hopefully you are correct. You mentioned origination, and I just wanted to 
get a sense from you about what is going on in the origination market now with rates continuing to climb. Uh, is volume just continuing to deteriorate or what's happening? Yeah, I wouldn't say deteriorate because it's already been relatively low and, and refinances have hit about as low as they can get, knock on, mm-hmm. knock on wood. But I mean, there is a small baseline level of refinance activity out there that's really cash out lending, perhaps surprisingly, is what's really left out there in the refinance space. And it's a very unique set of borrowers, right? It's, it's odd because the average borrower refinancing right now is raising their interest rate by 2.3%, which seems, wow, you know, absurd. Why would somebody give up a 5% interest rate refinance into a seven and a quarter? And it's because those borrowers are really centered around getting the equity out of their home, withdrawing some of that equity. And so you're seeing these very low balance borrowers that are willing to give up a, a historically low rate on a, a low sum to withdraw a large chunk of equity at a, a relatively reasonable rate compared to what you can get on second lien products, right? So there's some of that activity going on. And so if you're looking at this from a mortgage lender, you need to be very acutely understanding of, of what's going on in today's market, who's transacting, why they're transacting. Um, but then it's very heavily centered around the purchase market, right? This is the most purchase dominant mortgage lending has been in the last 30 years. We're seeing months where it's 88% purchase lending. Um, wow. So that's really where lenders are focused is, is driving that remaining purchase volume out there in the market. And what are the characteristics of the purchase loans? Is it home buyers? Yeah, absolutely. Home buyers. It, it's higher credit score borrowers, right? So there's a lot of economic uncertainty. There's uncertainty across the board. And so uh, you're seeing lenders that are very risk adverse right now. And so it's it's higher credit score mortgages. It's moving a little bit more towards the FHA space than it has been in recent years. When you look at how hot the market got in 2021, uh, in 2020, a lot of those would have been FHA buyers had to move into conventional mortgages because there were 10 offers on the table and the first ones that were getting swept onto the floor were FHA loans. And so you saw it more centered around uh, GSE lending back then. Right now, it's it's, I would say, a little cooler, right? Relatively speaking. Um, and so you're seeing those FHA offers that are being accepted at a little bit higher pace. You're seeing a relatively strong first-time home buyer uh, population out there. And so it's a more FHA paper than what we've seen in recent years. I think that's probably a relief to some people, right? Like you were saying, that FHA was just not really a viable option during the frenzy of the last couple of years. And for a lot of people, that is the best or only lending option out there. So hopefully that is helping some people who weren't able to compete, even though it's less affordable, at least you can compete yeah, against, you know, it's a less competitive environment for you to bid into uh, for a home. Yeah. Blessing and a curse, right? The reason that it's less competitive is it's because it's less affordable as well. So you're dealing right. with affordability challenges, but less competition out there in the market, certainly. What we're talking about here, I should have done this at the top. Sorry, everyone. It, these are just residential mortgages, right? This doesn't include commercial loans. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we're looking okay. at folks buying you know, single family residences, buying condos out there, buying one to four unit properties across the U.S. Does any of your data indicate what is going on with investor behavior? It does, right? Investors going to be a little bit more difficult to tease out. But when you look at investor activity, especially in recent years, they've kind of ebbed and flowed along with the market. So you saw them move in when we all knew that uh, inflation was going to become strong. They were trying to put their money into assets rather than holding it into cash because everyone knew cash was going to get devalued in an inflationary environment. And so you saw them kind of push into the market in 2020, 2021. They've backed off along with overall volumes declining in recent years. 
but they make up a larger share because they're a little bit less affected by interest rate movement because you have more cash behavior there in that investor space. They make up a little bit larger share, but they have been kind of ebbing and flowing in and out of the market, similar to other folks, only to a little bit stronger degree early on and a little bit lesser degree more lately. Got it. Thank you. You said earlier that assumable mortgages are sort of one of the things that are growing in popularity. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. And and for folks that aren't familiar with what an assumable mortgage is, it's effectively, if I sell you my home, not only can you have my home, but you can assume my mortgage along with it. Now, the reason that that's attractive is if I have a three and a half to 4% interest rate on my home, you get an interest rate three and a half to 4% below what you could get out there in the market right now. So at face value, they seem very, very attractive in, in today's market where folks have locked in very, very low interest rates and you're looking at getting a seven and a half percent interest rate if you just go directly to a lender today, right? So uh, again, face value, these look like very attractive options and they're relatively common. Uh, there are about 12 million assumable mortgages, right? So FHA, VA, USDA mortgages are assumable out there. It's about 12 million. So that means one in four roughly mortgaged homes in the US has an assumable mortgage, wow. which also sounds like, hey, there's a ton of opportunity. And a little over 7 million of those have a rate of below 4%. So 14% of mortgage homes, you could assume the mortgage and get a 4% rate or, or better, right? So it, it seems like a ton of opportunity. And, and it's certainly a growing segment and a, a growing opportunity out there in the market. There are a few reasons why it hasn't taken off as much as maybe you'd expect in hearing those numbers. One of them is two-thirds of those that are assumable below 4% have been taken out in the last three and a half years, meaning folks just bought their home recently or they just refinanced and they want to hold on to that low rate, right? They're expecting to live there for a while. Uh, reason number two is it's attractive to a potential buyer. It's attractive to that existing homeowner mm-hmm. as well, right? So they don't want to give up a, a sub 4% interest rate for the same reason that you want a sub 4% interest rate as a buyer. And then the third reason is more around home prices and home price growth, right? So if you look at those 12 million assumable mortgages out there, average home vo- home value is about $375,000. The mortgage is only about $225,000, right? So you're going to need to bring an extra $150,000 to assume the average home, either in cash wow. or via secondary financing at a higher interest rate. And a lot of folks assuming these mortgages, right? We're, we're talking FHA, VA homes. They're in uh, more first-time homebuyer communities. Folks shopping in those specific places don't have $150,000 in cash uh, to bring to the table. Or that secondary financing offsets some of the savings you were going to get with that assumable loan. So Certainly attractive out there in some situations, but there are some reasons why you're not seeing it completely take off and and everybody selling their mortgage or turning over their mortgage along with their home. And just so everyone listening knows, because most of these people are investors who aren't owner-occupied, assumable mortgages really are only available for owner-occupants. So if you were considering house hacking in a, in a duplex or quadplex, this is a feasible option. But if you wanted a traditional rental property, you would have to go a different creative finance route, but you couldn't do, use an assumable mortgage. So Andy, you know, I got you here. Curious about, you know, we're, we're fresh into Q4. Curious, you know, we're seeing some seasonal declines. Where do you think we're heading through the end of the year? I think you're going to have to watch housing metrics very, very closely for the tail end of this year. And and here's why, right? If you look at how hot the housing market has been so far in 2023, and there have been months where we've been 60% above normal growth in terms of housing, there's a lot of baked in reacceleration that's going to take place out there. So if you're looking at annual home price growth rates, I mentioned nationally, they're up 3.8% through August. 
they were effectively flat in May. If we didn't see any more growth, right, and we just followed a traditional seasonal pattern, you're going to see that annual home price growth rate rise from 3.8 to 5% through the tail end of this year. So there's wow. some baked in reacceleration out there in the market that's going to carry the housing market higher. The reason that I say you need to watch very closely is that may be countered by some slowing out there in the market from the recent rise in interest rates, right? So keep in mind, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but the August home price numbers that you're seeing out there, those August closings went under contract in July. Interest rates were more than a half a percent below where they were today. And so you're seeing a different affordability environment as we sit here in October than when these latest housing market numbers, when, when those homes were put under contract, right? And so there's going to be a lot of tea leave reading here in housing market numbers over the next few months to say, what if this was baked in reacceleration that we already had caked in before we got to these latest home price rises? And how much actual shift are we seeing in the market from this rising interest rate environment that could slow us down over the tail end of this year? And so you have to watch those housing market numbers very, very closely, understand what month you're looking at, understand when they went under contract, because I do expect some inflection out there in the market based on this latest interest rate increase. And you're already seeing it in mortgage applications, right? Even when you look at seasonally adjusted numbers, we're now at the deepest deficit that we've seen so far in the pandemic in terms of buyer oh, wow. demand out there. And that could cool off not only volumes, transaction volumes, but could cool off prices as well. You're just going to have to dissect that cooling from the already baked in reacceleration that's, that's kicked into some of these upcoming numbers. That's interesting. So just to make sure everyone understands this, you know, we talk about on the show that year over year housing data is really important to look at versus month over month because of the seasonality in the housing market. But to your point, Andy, there, there's something called known as the base effect that goes on sometimes when you're looking at year over year data. Whereas like if last year we had this anomalous high growth, which is what happened last year, usually the housing market doesn't grow in Q4, but it did last year that it may look like, or excuse me, sorry, it, it shrunk last year in Q4. So it's going to look like we had significant year over year growth in Q4, even if there is a loss of momentum, it might not necessarily be reflected in that data. So uh, I think that's really important and a good reason for everyone, as Andy said, to keep an eye on metrics very closely uh, over this year. You're right. Traditionally, you'd want to look at year over year versus month over month. One way that we've been looking at it, and I really like right now, is month over month seasonally adjusted numbers, right? They take that seasonal component out because you will get very confused if you look at the housing market and look month over month and don't seasonally adjust. <laughs> right. You're going to be yeah. here, you're going to be seeing a, a different trend every six months, right? Look at the seasonally adjusted month over month numbers, and those will give you indications for where those annual growth rates are going to go. And then you can take out the downward effect if you want to last year, right? So a seasonally adjusted month over month is is really important in today's market, and that's going to be one of the key key uh, uh, metrics to watch as we move towards the tail end of this year. Awesome. Now, in in your mortgage report, there is a lot of the mortgage monitor report. There's some great data about what's going on regionally. I'm just curious, what are some of the big trends that you're seeing? Because, you know, over the last year, we've sort of seen, I guess, a return to somewhat normalcy in that different markets are performing differently, whereas mm -hmm. during the pandemic, everything was just straight up. <laughs> do you see that pattern continuing or do you think sort of mortgage rates are going to dictate the direction of every market, regardless of region? I think mortgage rates are going to dictate direction, but you're going to see some regional differences uh, undoubtedly, right? And Maybe we just hop across the country and talk about what we're seeing in region from region to region. I mean, the the upper Midwest and Northeast have been and continue to be among the hottest markets in the country. And the reason behind that is affordability 
well below long run averages, but still strong compared to the rest of the country. And more importantly, you've got massive inventory deficits in the upper Midwest and Northeast. So regardless of the metric, right, we were talking about which metric you should look at earlier, take any metric you want to take month over month, take year over year, take where we're at today versus peak values next year. The upper north, the, the the northeastern part of the country and upper Midwest are going to be at the top of the list in terms of home price growth, right? So those are the strongest, and we expect to remain the strongest in the near term. When you get over into the west, right, it's it's really interesting. And again, this is where you see some differences, and you really have to be aware of which metric you're looking at. The west saw some of the strongest corrections, right? We can lump pandemic boom towns in there if you want to, Phoenix and Boise and Austin and those guys. We saw some of these strongest corrections late last year, one, because those are the most uh, unaffordable markets, not only compared to the rest of the country, those are the most unaffordable markets compared to their own long run averages. And when interest rates rose last year, those are the markets where you saw inventory return back to pre-pandemic levels. And they're the few markets that did it. And anytime we've seen a market get anywhere close to those pre-pandemic levels, we've seen prices start to correct, right? So those are markets that came down significantly last year and they were the coolest markets. With the exception of Austin, which continues to correct, Mm -hmm. if you look at what happened in August, the fastest month-over-month growth was in uh, San Jose, Phoenix, Seattle, uh, Las Vegas, which is really was really surprising to me when we looked at those numbers. Right, those are markets that are still down four percent last year, but all of a sudden, sellers have somewhat backed away. Inventory deficits are returning in those markets, and you're seeing the housing markets reheat again. Right. So I think it tells us a couple of different things. One, as we move through the next couple of years, expect a lot of inflection going on in the housing market. You're going to see some ebbs and flows when you've got a 50% deficit of inventory and a 45% deficit right now in demand. If either one of those moves in any direction, you could see sharp upward and downward swings in, in the housing market. And those pandemic boom markets are extremely volatile right now. Right. We saw the fastest 10% drops in prices we've ever seen in the housing market last year in some of those markets. And then now you look at month over month seasonally adjusted and they're seeing some of the sharpest rises. Right. So a lot of of nuance going on around the country when you look at it on a, on a region by region or market by market basis. Well, I'm glad to hear it gives people a reason to listen to this podcast as long (laughs) as there's a lot of uh, economic volatility, even though we don't like it. It's uh, good for my employment status. But Andy, this has been super helpful and very informative. Is there anything else you think from your mortgage monitor report or anything else that you think our audience of investors should know right now? No, I mean, I, I think we've covered most of it. I think the the key thing, and again, this goes back to your employment, right? I mean, it, it's really watching what's going on on a month over month basis. And I, I think there are some folks that you started to see the housing market kind of bottom out and start to pick up steam here this year. And it was, oh, you know, we're, we're back to normal and, and the worst of it's over. And, you know, this is it. And, and we're ready to to move forward. I I don't think so personally, right? If you look at the underlying numbers, and I I touched on this a second ago, if you look at how unbalanced both sides are, you could still see a lot of volatility. And it's going to be years before we see what's quote unquote, a normal housing market and ready for just normal sustained uh, three to 4% growth over, over the long run. So expect the unexpected, expect volatility out of the housing market. We're still in a very unbalanced position and you, you could see shifts in either direction. Um, and a lot of it's going to be driven by one, what happens with interest rates and you know how sticky the broader economy and inflation is and how that puts pressure on mortgage interest rates out there in the market. And then two, that the demand side. And, and we were talking about that earlier, right? Where does that, or sorry, I said demand, I meant supply side. Where does that inventory ultimately come from, right? Are builders able to to eventually help us build out of this? 
when do sellers uh, become willing to sell again? And do we see any kind of distressed inventory? I mean, those are going to be the key components on that side. Awesome. Great. Well, that is excellent advice for our listeners. And if people want to check out your mortgage monitor report, which is awesome, everyone, if you have an interest in this type of stuff, definitely check it out or anything else that you're doing at ICE, where should they check that out? Yeah. So they can access that a few different ways. We'll add a link to the latest report in the show notes where they can just click that and go directly to that latest report. We also have a full archive on our website at blacknight.com that you can go out there and access some of our historical reports as well. And if there's anything you want to see beyond that, right, you want info on our uh, home price index or anything like that, you can email us at mortgage.monitor at bkfs.com and we can communicate that way as well. Great. Thank you. And just again, everyone, uh, it is in the show notes or description, depending on where you're checking us out. Andy Walden, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure. We appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.